All right, you punks, it's time for a new episode of the Brood Noise Podcast. It's been a few months since the first episode already, and I sincerely apologize for that. I'm still learning the ropes, and my timing hasn't been the best, considering the fact that Norwegian productivity more or less dies off with the summer holiday. Besides, the mere process of editing this podcast is pushing my piece-of-shit computer to its absolute limits. Anyway, I'm sitting here back in the swamp, and all the people I want on my show have hopefully returned from whatever campaign they've been on all summer. I've been in New York, walking in the steps of Moondog, and visiting the Metropolitan Museum and the Morgan Library, where my eyes have feasted on Byzantine as well as Barbarian Gold. No wonder then that I felt a strong inclination to return home and take a closer look at what the Romans did for those of us who live north of what would have been the Roman border just about 2,000 years ago. If you thought the Romans had no influence over prehistoric Scandinavia, then you should think again. In fact, there's so much stuff that we couldn't get into that I think that we'll have to revisit this at some later point in time. Then we'll probably be focusing on the material remains and how the post-Roman period from the Migration Era into the Viking Age shaped Scandinavia. Today we'll be focusing mostly on the immaterial, cultural and linguistic impact the Romans had on the Germanic tribes that lived in the shadow of the Western Roman Empire. Of course, we're not called Brutnors for nothing, so that means I'm charging head-on with all my Scandinavian biases and preferences and with no small emphasis on the Norse texts. The very first time I met today's guest was on an excursion with the University of Bergen to the sacred Isle of Tysnes many years ago. This is an island on the west coast of Norway and it has the highest density of sacred place names in the entire country. And when I say sacred place names I mean places that have compounds that are related to a god or some kind of cultic sacred practice. The island of Tysnes in fact used to be called Njördarlog, a place that means the dominion of Njördr, the sea god. Other places on and around the island translate to stuff like the sacred rock, the holy place, the islands of the gods, and of course, importantly, the sacred lake. The name Njardarlog was scrapped in recent times, perhaps because of its pagan etymology and connotations. Preferring the name of the site where the church stood instead, ironically, Tisnes means the Ness of Tyr, the war god, and the site is the center of a bizarre solar phenomenon that appears not only at the winter and summer solstices, but the equinoxes too, which you would think would be almost impossible. It's a beautiful place as well, full of folklore, and standing stones that pop out of every hillside. And what's more is the fact that Njordr may be etymologically connected to an ancient Germanic deity called Nartus, who was described by the Roman historian Tacitus as being worshipped on an island with a central sacred lake, just like, as I mentioned, Tisnes has. Tisnes is also rich in Roman-era burials, which makes it even more interesting. But before we rile ourselves up, Tacitus was talking about an island that he believed to be further south, probably in Denmark or Germany. Nonetheless, I think it's really fascinating to compare the two, you know. I'll leave it up to you 
to make the interpretations there. Anyway, our guest Christer Vastus is an onomast, and I know that that sounds like some kind of sex fiend. Don't worry. Onomastics is the academic study of proper names, their significance and meaning. He's one of the most easygoing people I've ever known, with a tremendous eye for ancient curiosities and impressive forging skills. Today, he'll be unleashing a barbarian horde of mind-boggling fact bombs on us all. when we're not only Scandinavians speaking uh, English to each other, we're Norwegians speaking English just for the sake of you guys listening to this podcast. Yeah, that's how kind we are. Uh, so, Christer, you know, um, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, I'm Christer Vassus and um, I'm a PhD student in onomastic sciences at the University in Bergen at Språk Samlingen. Um, and... Well, although my uh, field of studies at the moment is uh, place names in, in Scandinavia, I've also been quite interested in uh, pre-Christian religion um, and also just, of course, the migrative period and uh, archaeology and everything connected to uh, North, Northern, North European prehistory and history, really. Yeah, so so Christer is uh, really a, uh, he's an interdisciplinary scholar uh, according to my own heart. You know, he uh, he's interested in archaeology, philology, etymology, and of course studying the onomastic sciences. It's uh, place names and their etymology. You wrote your uh, your masters on uh, on sacred groves, uh, pre-Christian uh, sacred groves in uh, west uh, nor western Norway. Um, and I did some interesting findings there. Yeah, um, yeah. It's always, you know, particularly the the sacred groves. Uh, I've been looking at place names that don't spe- specifically state that they are sacred groves, but I actually had to look at the surrounding place names and the surrounding potentially archaeology and what have you, to see what kind of environment is this place name in, to see if I could figure out whether it's a profane name, because a grove can really just be a little tiny wood, Uh, but it can also be a place where cultic activities took place. Um, And according to myself, around 30% of uh, places in Western Norway called Lun or containing the uh, the name Lun, so yeah. it could be meaning grove, right? Yes, yeah. it means grove. Um, about thirty percent of them seems to be uh, sacral to have uh, been used in pre-Christian cultic activity. We're never really done 
in, in uh, 20 years time I can look at the same place and maybe think hmm this is not quite uh, what I thought it would be anymore and this has happened in onomastic sciences before um, where things have been revised of course as in most other kinds of sciences things are revised yeah, yeah it's such a such a philological <laughs> uh, issue right you know mm -hmm. there it's so it's always about like the likelihood of an interpretation yes, it's like exactly. very much a soft science exactly. but it's even more that has its appeal i think you mm -hmm. know it allows a lot for That's, the imagination i think the more difficult i know it's going to be to find the right answer the more interesting I think it is. Yeah. Uh, so that's sort of what draws me to uh, the things that I want to go deeper into is how difficult can this possibly be? And when the answer is quite, yeah. I will go for it. There's a degree of speculation, yeah. Absolutely. But, uh, but, uh, uh, and in, uh, in, in example, in my master thesis, uh, I had to speculate because mm. there's a limit to what you uh, onomastic sciences are is, is a linguistic science so you can say something on the basis of what you can see in the language this names name comes from this word or these words but yeah that's only fun to do when you can place it in a context and then you have to use the context in my opinion uh, and not all uh, scholars within the onomastic sciences agree with me on this uh, they would much rather prefer to just look at the language what can you say about the names from the language yeah I'm more inclined to look at other things and come with my interpretations connected to in example the uh, environment around uh, the name yeah, we want back. We want to go back to the roots. You know, we want to go oh, back yes. to the what what was in the minds of the people who mm. gave names to these oh, things. Yeah, yeah. that's you know, the yeah. really interesting part. This is really interesting, but this is not why you know I summoned you here today. Yeah. Norse and medieval stuff is all fine, you know, but some of the stuff that me and Krista are really into is the older, what we call the older Scandinavian Iron Age, you know? That is the Roman period, also the pre-Roman uh, Iron Age, uh, what they, in the UK, refer to as the Iron Age. Through, you know, the Roman Empire into the Migration Era, the fall of Rome, the Merovingian period from the Migration Era into the Viking Age, you know, that's, that's the, uh, the that's stuff the we, stuff. yeah. The Elder Futhark, you know? Romanized barbarians and you know all mm. that stuff you know Attila the Hun that's that's the oh, yeah. that's a real nice stuff in English uh, historiography at least like popular history uh, you have this question popping up what did the Romans do for us mm. you know and I always thought as a Scandinavian that uh, you know the Roman border was very far away from Scandinavia and I always thought you know the Romans did you know fuck all for uh, for Scandinavia, they didn't do anything for us. Whatever did the Romans do for us? Yeah, they didn't build our roads. We didn't have any roads until like the <laughs> yeah the Germans built roads at least. You know that's yeah. uh, <laughs> but uh, medieval times in Scandinavia maybe you had roads, but yeah, the Romans didn't build any of that. No, they they're not taking credit for our infrastructure, but they did a few other interesting things. Yeah, you know? they did. 
I'm gonna get back to this in a few weeks too with a follow-up to this podcast about the material culture mainly, but we're gonna talk, talk about the immaterial culture and heritage today. Because uh, the, the Romans actually did qu quite a lot uh, when you think about it for uh, not only Scandinavian culture but for Germanic culture as well, mm -hmm. like uh, on a whole, like yeah, back, in, back in the good old days, you know, of these barbarian tribes. Oh yeah, what what did the Romans ever do for us? Uh, well, they gave us the well, some of the earliest recorded history uh, is from Roman scholars. Yeah. Um, uh, the most popular one himself, Gaius Julius Caesar, uh, yeah. wrote something. Well, he called them Germanians, but uh, whether it was. Germanians or, or Celts, I'm not entirely sure, uh, yeah. because his explanations about what they did diverge a bit from what, in example, Tacitus or Tacitus uh, wrote uh, a little late, later in the first century uh, AD. And Tacitus writes some quite interesting and convincingly absolutely Germanic things. Uh, he, he described some of the gods they, uh, the Germanians worshipped, um, although he called them, of course, Hercules and yeah. uh, Mercury and who else was it? Yeah, this is the, the practice where the, where, the, where the Romans uh, Latinize and translate the, you know, barbarian gods yeah. and practices like they say that, uh, what do you call it, like Interpretatio Romana? Uh, instead of saying that they, uh, yeah, like they don't worship Thor, they worship Jupiter, or they don't worship Odin, they they worship Mercury. Like the mm. so the the Latin sources are kind of ignorant of the language of the Germans, but they describe their yeah. their culture. Yes, yeah. they do. Uh, I read through some of his uh, writings today, and it's always you know he wrote it with the uh, well the Latin people didn't really like the barbarians in the north so uh, a lot of what he wrote was they, they're completely ugly and uncivilized and uh, they don't that uh, they, they even breastfeed their own kids I mean they yeah. <laughs> yeah and we and we interlope across their borders you know and steal their stuff you yeah. know <laughs> terrible people yeah um, but uh, yeah, they, they, there are absolutely some um, interesting recorded, well, I mean, they, they, you say they interpreted well, the Roman interpretation and uh, translation of names, well, there are names of tribes, an example, yeah, that's true, um, yeah. that we hear for the first time in these, in these texts. Um, uh, an example, the Rugi tribe, which probably have given name to the island of Regen in Germany, as well as Rogalan and Riefylke in Norway. And this tribe is placed geographically quite far, like in Pomerania or something like this. Oh yeah. Uh, in the times of Tacitus, so that it, it means that there's been a migrative period since. Yeah, uh, Tacitus, and that's quite interesting as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. And by the way, 
me and uh, me and Christopher, we are both from the same county in Norway. You know, yes. we used to be tribal territories. We are both Rugians. You know? Yeah. So it's not a random <laughs> example. Probably we are both biased. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I used to consider myself much of a Rugian. I, yeah. but I think that my father's side is from Hologaland, so like northern Norwegian. Yeah, yeah. I'm an ethnic <laughs> northern Norwegian, and actually, <laughs> but yeah, it's. I think this is really cool, and and. Uh, uh, touched to us, you know, he he considered the Germans to be like the term noble savage is maybe a bit anachronistic maybe in this mm. context because it's it's it has such later connotations, mm. you know, but uh, but didn't he kind of consider them a little like that, you know that they yeah. were like this anti-ideal of Yeah, Romans, he admired know? their uh, their ability to stay faithful in marriage, that was one of the yeah, things like the, that he really... The prime sin, you know, yeah. like because the Romans are so promiscuous, you know, <laughs> so the, the, the Germans, whatever it is, it is you know, the, the greatest sin is like to, to, to cheat on your spouse yeah, or whatever, yeah. yeah. Uh, Terrible but, drinkers though, the Germans, yeah. according to Tashtas, you know. Yeah. You know like, I, I really enjoy reading the, uh, the really old scriptures because they give some kind of insight to uh, a place in history where it's completely blank in yeah. sources from the territory itself, uh, which is, yeah, it's always interesting, I think, to, uh, to get a different perspective on uh, our forefathers yeah. and from themselves. Don't you always have that? Like, there's, there seems to, like, throughout history, there's always, like, these uh, characters that are... Then write a history and just shed light on something that we would be completely unknown to us if these mm. guys hadn't mm. come along, you know, mm. or if they're, you know, the manuscripts containing them had disappeared, you know. Yeah. You have uh, Snorri, you know, who wrote uh, the Prose Edda, you know, I guess we would have had some stuff, you know, if he wasn't around, but you know, yeah. it's, it's so much kind of. Uh, we, we are, we have to be so thankful for Snorri at the same time as we, of course. Uh, go nuts by uh, all the complications that it involves with uh, having a Christian uh, scholar writing about pre-Christian uh, times and whatnot. Oh yeah, but, uh, Anyway, yeah, that's true. It's a completely different podcast. Yeah. Uh, now, Germanic countries imported the uh, Roman week system. Yes. And and this survives in Scandinavia today. Yes. Yeah. yeah, in a quite large degree. Uh, the Romans named their Days after gods, yeah. Uh, so and they had cults, cult to the gods in yes. different days of the week. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it makes sense. And whether Scandinavians had the same cults for their days of the weeks, um, that that's a different question. Yeah, we don't really know, right? No. Yeah. Uh, but the days are very clearly translated from from Latin. Uh, Monday, the day of the moon is called, well, if you translate the Latin uh, word for it, it's the moon day. Yeah. Uh, And Tuesday in uh, Latin, that's the day of Mars. And Tu is the god of war in Scandinavian languages. Mm. And all Scandinavian uh, and Germanic religion. Um, And so it goes on. Uh, Wednesday, the day of Wodan or Udin, was the day of Mercury. Hmm. Uh, Thursday was 
Jupiter, the thunder god. And then there's Friday, which uh, might be Frigg, the uh, the goddess of uh, marriage, mm. Venus, translated from Venus. It might also be Freya. Mm. So the uh, the daughter of Njord and the uh, wife of Frey, goddess of fertility, etc. But Freya yeah. and Frigg are etymologically connected too, aren't they? That's so they might have been the same. So difficult, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> it could have been the same goddess <laughs> at that yeah. point, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the odd one. Um, oh, yeah. At least in English, uh, it's, well, it's Saturday, so it's just. The, actually from Saturn, the, yeah, uh, the Roman god. Uh, in Scandinavian we call it uh, Lerodag, which means laundry day. The, the German word for, for uh, Saturday is, well, there are actually two versions. You can either say Samstag, which is uh, from the Sabbath. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. The etymology goes back to the Sabbath. So the Sabbath day, um, but you can also say uh, Sonnabend, which is diff- uh, interesting because Sonnabend, that uh, means the sun evening. Uh, and here oh, we have yeah. an interesting clue of how the Germanic people counted their days. They, their days start in the evening. Yeah, uh, and that's so interesting because in in in... Scandinavian holidays too, you know, we have this, we don't celebrate Christmas Day, we celebrate Christmas Eve, exactly. you know, it's, it's yeah. like, uh, and, and a lot of the folk holidays in Scandinavia are uh, the night before, you know, a church mm. holiday and things mm. like that, so it's like uh, we retain the, the old, already kind of pagan feasts, you know, that have like a public appeal, and yeah, wow, that is quite interesting. Mm. So Sonnabend then goes on to Sonntag the next day, which was also in English, Sunday and Sonntag in uh, Scandinavian means the day of the sun. Some Germanic speaking cultures have gotten rid of a lot of these, uh, these weekdays, you know. In Germany, they don't say Wednesday, they say yeah, Mittwoch. Yeah, yeah, it means like middle, middle week. Middle week, yeah. yeah. But it's also interesting, it's like, uh, they're, they're like calendrically speaking. Yeah. When people interpret like uh, more ancient Germanic religion, they always put uh, Odin like in a very central seat. Thor is sometimes thought of as a particularly Viking Age deity, mm. but a lot, of, a lot of the stuff that follows Thor is very ancient. I think you know his. I don't think these that he's uh, any younger than than Odin by any regard. But I guess the the old Germanic, the Proto-Germanic word for Odin would be like a Wotanaz, or, yeah. you know. Yeah. And when they've encountered the people who worship that deity, they don't associate him necessarily with uh, uh, with with Mars, you know, the god of war. Odin is like known primarily, often very much as a war deity. They associate him with Mercury, who is not a war deity, but one of you know magic and trade, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. theory and treacherous god. Yeah. And that is how we know Odin later on. It's it very, it's, it's illuminating. It shows that. There are some of these aspects of Odin that are very ancient, right? Yeah. yeah. And wow, of course, there's uh, there's the runes. The runes. Yeah. I'm presuming that everybody who listens to this podcast knows what the runes are. But the runes are an epigraphic system of writing 
uh, of initially 24 letters, mm -hmm. more or less. They, they pop up in the Roman era, in uh, continental Germania, mm -hmm. became very popular in Scandinavia and survives the longest here, I guess. But their origins, yeah. The first inscription that I think ha has to be uh, Germanic is the Negau helmet. Yeah, uh, it's a, and it's an Etruscan inscription, but in a Germanic, in Proto-Germanic, yes. right? Yeah. Harigastiteva, or Harigasti with a K, not a G. Yeah. Um, and very clearly Germanic, but with Etruscan letters, which yeah. gives us sort of a sign of uh, what kind of influence made the runes happen. Yeah. And what did that say? Harigasti Tewa? Tewa. And, yeah. and the Tewa is presumed to be some sort of variation of uh, Tiwaz, the, oh, yeah. the god the, of the god, war. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, and Harigasti is very clearly a Germanic name. Yes. Yeah. Uh, compound of Hari, which means uh, army or at least warrior, possibly, yeah, probably a uh, warrior. And uh, Gasti, Gastir is, it means guest, yes. but was uh, a very common uh, suffix uh, or specific mm. in, in uh, personal names in yeah. all of Germanic, uh, the old Germanic area. Um, but that, that's also the probably the earliest, at least the Nego helmets themselves are quite early compared to runic in inscriptions. I think they're from two, uh, 200 BC. Oh, not, oh wow. That's, uh, uh, but but I, I, I'm quite sure the, uh, the Germanic inscription is yeah, younger. Yeah, yeah I, think, uh, I think I've heard also that the Nego helmets, they were not buried, they were just... Placed on the soil or... Uh, There's a ton of helmets stacked on top of each other, placed out there and they were just covered, <laughs> covered by sand. Moss. Yeah, yeah. yeah, oh my god. And they survived to this day. Mm -hmm. Look it up, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. But yeah, this is, uh, whatever the dating, you know, it's, it's significantly older than any runic inscription. And what are the oldest, like, I think there are some, some runes that are like, if yeah. we can interpret them as runes, they are pretty ancient. Yeah. But, uh, uh, the first inscriptions uh, are commonly dated to 3rd century uh, AD. Um, which is, I think that's fairly early. Yeah. Uh, but in a runological perspective, where you know runes only get kind of democratized in the late Viking Age mm. and into the High Middle Ages, mm. you know. So, so, so the inscriptions in the early ages were probably uh, something for a specific, well, not necessarily a class, but a certain group of. Uh, scholars within some narrow field, yeah. uh, usually referred to as rune magicians, at least in older uh, runology, uh, runology books uh, that I've read. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if if they're still considered as only you know magicians and connected to the uh, uh, the religious and uh, magic. Uh, aspects of yeah but that's like uh, you also have the like migrationary inscriptions that are mm. like uh, yeah you know i the erilage uh, uh, often very much in like scholarly literature they they translate it as like yeah i the rune master but there's yeah. nothing about erilage that suggests such a translation it's no like uh, it, and it bugs yeah. me yeah. a lot it's, it's so irritating yeah. it's clearly that 
Erelage is associated with a type of people that are familiar, that are proficient in runes. Yes. yes. But Erelage, you know, I think that's like an example of scholarship being its own worst enemy. It's clouding yeah. more than it's yeah. revealing. Yeah. And I, uh, it's associated with the Hederli, you know, Hederli that are mm-hmm. these Germanic tribes, either a Germanic were elite or a Germanic tribe, we're not quite sure, mm-hmm. uh, that are definitely active in the Roman Iron Age and in the Migration Era, yeah. both uh, as friends and foes of the Romans. Yes, yeah. and then later on in uh, Viking Age, you have the uh, term uh, which still lives in English today, the Earl, Yes. Uh, the Jarl. Which could be interpreted as um, uh, well a development from Erilad. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird uh, development, but still it could be. Yeah. So here you have a tribe or uh, an elite warrior class, mm. and then you have these rune masters, which yeah, are, this esoteric knowledge, yeah, and, and there are plenty of runic inscriptions that starts with ek erilad, which means I, the eril. Yeah, um, and then you have this uh, elite class of rulers in later uh, Viking Age, and um, uh, yeah, still exists in uh, in Great Britain today. Yeah, and it's uh, important to state that the runes are. Uh, very much like an elite five not most people did not know how to read or write the runes mm. to to possess knowledge of the runes was uh, impressive and perhaps even consciously kept away from commoners you know you had elites who kind of they would put these on stones and you would have one guy in a group you know mm. reading it aloud for mm. the other people or stuff like that uh, but yeah this this is also associated with the Romans and the Greeks also, I guess, yeah. because it has like that heritage. It, you know? it does, yeah. and uh, at least if you look at the uh, the staffs themselves, in, uh, in Scandinavian we call the letters staffs. Yeah. So if you look at the staffs, some of them are extremely similar to either Greek or Roman or Etruscan letters. Yeah, such as the H rune. It looks like an H. Yes. The A rune is also s- strikingly similar to an A. Yeah. Um, and so it goes on. And the, the I, I rune is exactly the same. Yeah. The S rune is sometimes very much similar. Yeah. yeah. And the R rune as yeah. well. The Germanic tribes and the elites clearly looked up to Roman written culture. And the Germanic culture was so different, very much focused on uh, witness accounts, on oaths, mm. on poetry. With po- Poetry is a very oral thing, you know. Mm. Written poetry at this point in time was an oxymoron. And, and so you have uh, these elites who look up to this and want to copy it. Mm. And sometimes we have runic inscriptions that are like pseudo-inscriptions. Yeah. That we don't, they don't even seem like their actual language. They are okay. copying... A written language that they have seen, but they do not have a written language themselves. Yeah, as far as we can see, though. Yeah, yeah. it might be some kind of uh, magic mumbo jumbo. Uh, of yeah. course, in some <laughs> cases, at least. But uh, in other cases, it's clearly just rambling, uh, or not even rambling. It's it's random runes or yeah. uh, or symbols that resembles writing. 
I know that many people listening to this will probably want there to be like uh, a meaning behind these sequences yeah, of yeah. runes, and I would love that as I well. I would love but, it. Uh, yeah. But but it's also pretty cool that you have a society that is aspiring to be written, but mm. there is no absolutely no precedence for a written language in this, no. and that in itself is from a cultural perspective extremely in- interesting to witness mm. in the sources. Yeah. Mm. And then, of course, it time time goes by and runes develop into having a few, a bit fewer runes. And then, in the Viking Age, clearly it becomes more uh, popular. Or popular is probably not the right word, but uh, clearly a lot of people are capable of both reading and writing runes. Yeah. And they get practical. You have practical inscriptions. Yeah, yeah. such as this. Dude your wife knows. tells you to go home. Yeah, uh, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I grew up uh, around uh, Avalsnes and Karmey, mm. which was the, which is this fabulous area, which is like uh, an archaeological treasure trove. Uh, like local, uh, the local tourist industry and whatnot, they like to call it, you know, the homeland of the Viking kings, Norway's birthplace, because. Harold Fairhair allegedly had his main seat there. But when it comes to archaeology, the Viking Age is not what stands out. There's a mound called the Flaghoun, and it's called, it means the Flag Mound. I think it's the, the most gold-dense burial mound in all of Scandinavia. Wow. And it uh, uh, contains a lot of um, Roman items. This is a Roman Iron Age one from right. the 3rd century. Oh, yeah. And uh, and you know the, of course what happens you know with uh, with as the Roman Empire expands you know it uh, it hit all you know these German tribes you know, and uh, uh, they they didn't expand anymore. No. But you have these tribes along the border that are being Romanized that are ins- mm. you know inspired by Roman culture that mm-hmm. are attracted to it that are importing its goods. And that are adapting to Roman culture and taking yeah. parts of the language too. Latin is, together with Greek, by far the most important exporter of loan words into at least in Norwegian. Yeah. I'm not sure about the rest of uh, the Germanic languages, but when it comes to Norwegian, uh, Latin is on top, and mm. uh, Greek follows fairly closely um, by it, but then you have to go uh, half as many loan words uh, if in the number three language, yeah. which I think is French. Yeah. Um, are, they, are these recent things or are they largely old? Are, are there, how is the distribution? A lot, a lot of it, of course, comes with uh, Catholicism and yeah. uh, the, uh, the sciences in general, um, but some words are fairly ancient and prehistoric, such as the word cat, which yeah. we've touched upon. Yeah, uh, yeah you, uh, wrote a, you wrote a piece for, for the blog yes. about that, yes. you know. If you're a cat lover, be sure to check that out on brutenorse.com. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there, there certainly are uh, new words and concepts uh, that are important, and uh, even morphological endings to uh, nomen agentis is that the right word maybe it is yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, such as the fisher the yeah. er yeah. is from Roman 
So some somebody who does something based on a verb. Yeah. A fisher, a shoemaker, or whatever. That's it, Roman. Yeah, that's, it's interesting because you have, uh, uh, like for instance, you have the suffix uh, arius. Suffix was yeah, the word yeah, I was looking yeah. for. <laughs> the, the suffix arius, uh, yeah. which is, you know, so, so blatantly Latin, you know, when you listen to it. It exists in... Uh, it exists also in Germanic languages, and for instance, you know, Miller, Miller, mm. Old Norse is millinari, and it comes from Latin molinarius. Yeah. And this is not, a, this is, by the way, not an example that I just, you know, happen to know. This is because I read this uh, amazing uh, article by Anders Kalef and Olof Sundqvist mm. called Odin and the Cult of Mithras. Mm. Uh, and it goes into you know that uh, Germanic culture borrowed a lot from uh, from you know Roman society, both in terms of uh, political organization, but particularly things like trade and the military system. Mm. And there are so many uh, Latin loanwords from this period that are associated with uh, military and trade. Uh, for instance, you have um, well one very common and very you know, prevalent example is uh, Old Norse ketil, you know, it's the same as uh, English kettle, it comes from katilus. Mm. It's uh, related to, I think, uh, you know, situla uh, as well, you know, a Roman yeah. wine container, yeah. and those were exported en masse into Germanic society, where you had chieftains who were importing these drinkware, and you have these charismatic leaders who are, uh, you know, dowsing uh, their subjects with luxuries yeah, that are no, Roman, I you mean, know. Who wouldn't want that fermented grape juice? Yeah, and wien, you know, uh, yeah. Old Norse uh, uh, wien uh, comes from, you know, uh, a loanword into Germanic from mm. Roman wienum, you know. Gothic has a militon, which comes from uh, Latin militare, you know, mm. a military. It's, I think this is uh, a heavy Roman military presence, you know, bordering the uh, areas where the Germanic tribes lived, you know. Um, you also have, of course, the pressure against the Roman Empire, both mm. by uh, Germanic barbarian tribes, but also other uh, Oriental tribes pushing in across the border. There is a, a Germanization of the military system. Yeah. We have a lot of Germanic mercenary armies, auxiliaries. Uh, that are coming to uh, to the Roman Empire and getting training, you know, and offering mm. their services. Mm. And presumably, they also learn Roman culture. Uh, they learn Roman words. Mm. And there's a big question here, you know. We're talking about reconstructing the pre-Christian worldview, especially like pre before we have written sources like the Icelandic. Yeah, uh, sagas before uh, Snorri's prose Edda, before we have the poetic Edda, and before we even have Old Norse language, you know, what did Germanic religion look like? Mm. And there are certain aspects of Odin, uh, the, the god of magic, eroticism, poetry, death, uh, but very much a ruler, aristocratic mm. god. Mm. In this article by Olof Sundqvist and Anders Kalef, they're discussing, uh, and this is based on a book they actually published as well, you have two deities that are very similar to mm. each other. You have Odin and you have the Roman deity of Mithras, mm. you know? And he was an immensely popular warrior god in uh, the Roman Empire. He was especially popular 
along the Roman Germanic border. Mm. That's where you find like a lot of sanctuaries dedicated to him. So the Germanic uh, traders and military people who uh, were either serving for the Roman emperor and you know the army or doing trade with them would inevitably have had to met people who were believers of the god Mithras. The Mithraic mysteries, that's what we're talking about, because this is a mystery religion. You're being initiated into this religion. Mm. This is a warrior religion, so these are warriors. You're initiated into a warrior society, a brotherhood, and it's a feasting-oriented uh, religion where you, you gather up in little like subterranean halls and you eat. I think they have excavated a few of them and they find a lot of chicken bones. We don't understand the archaeology behind this, but they eat, consume a lot of chicken in the Mithraic mysteries. And they, all of the initiates are symbolically warriors in the army of Mithras, associated with several animals like horses and ravens, stuff that we associate also with Odin in the Viking Age, where you have this idea that metaphorically he is the leader of the army mm. when the warriors are seated in the mead hall and and the king is distributing gold and sending out gifts uh, serving alcohol to his retainers uh, they are partaking in like a sacred ceremony that is very much in parallel with Valhalla they are mm. they are symbolically the dead warriors Mm. in communion with the god in the other world. Mm. And I think this is amazingly fascinating, this concept that you have people going in, down there, you know, encountering this and maybe bringing this back to Scandinavia. Mm. But that's also a question of interpretation, isn't it? Of course you know? it is. Yeah. Because uh, this could be things that are more ancient that they just simply have in common. Or they could be, you know, uh, two similar deities already that are kind of drawing, drawn towards each yeah. other. Or, you know, what's uh, going on here, you know? It's so difficult to say, really. Yeah. Uh, and Odin as a deity is also so many different things. Yeah, it's impossible a... to place him in one box, yeah. uh, so to say. He's, he's both like the honorable, kind of like proper warlord and ruler, but he's yeah. also kind of this subversive character that is like yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like sticking it to the power, you know? Yeah. It's, it's so, it's impossible to, to kind of place him accurately. But there's a lot of other stuff that the Romans did uh, in, uh, yeah. in terms of the Norse mythology, really, you know? You have uh, in the heroic poetry, for example, you know? A lot of that stuff goes on in the migration era. Yeah, much of it really does. I mean, the, uh, the Volsung saga definitely stretches back to Attila the Hun. Yeah, Attila is like a villain, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To be fair, it's probably a, it's probably a fair description as well uh, of the actual Attila the Hun. If there is something like a Bond villain. In like the Western oh, yes. heroic tradition, that yeah, then, yeah. then it is him. He is, yeah, definitely the best Bond villain of the migrated period. Very interesting. I, I noticed when I was reading Atlaquida mm -hmm. earlier, you know, that there is an Atlaquida that is a, a poem uh, and about a, a feast at uh, the estate of a man called Atli, and Atli apart from being, you know, a very popular Scandinavian name, Atle, uh, Atli also is Attila, yeah. you know. He's, of course, the main villain in this poem. 
but the protagonists, they have in their possession uh, artifacts that belong to a mythological or like a legendary character called Kiar. And I think that they believe that this is reconstructable back to uh, Caesar via Proto-Norse uh, Keharaj yeah. or something like yeah. that. That could make sense. Yeah. And the word Kaiser in German and Kaiser in Scandinavian well. Yes, yeah, these are all Caesar. Like, yeah, it's all yeah. from Caesar. Kaiser. It's so interesting that like uh, like Caesar, uh, probably at that point in time, they're just referring to like this was stolen from the emperor or mm. something like mm. that. You know, it's like a legend about that. It's not probably not Julius Caesar, but it could be one of the later Caesars, yeah. you know, in the, you know during the sack of Rome and stuff like that. Many of these uh, uh, heroes from the uh, Old Norse poetry are said to be Goths and that sort of thing. And that begs a lot of questions, I think, about the uh, oral culture, you know, in it Old does. Norse. Because source criticism is something we always have to battle with in this, you know. Uh, are the, do the sources tell a truthful tale about, uh, the, uh, about the past? Of course, you know, it's... it's a lot of this is fiction, There, it's legendary, but how long can a motif survive, mm. you know? Clearly, a long, long time. Yeah, because this stuff was written down in like the 1200s, yeah. right? What is this? Six, seven hundred, eight hundred years after they happened, yeah. you know? Yeah. They still have a cultural memory of Attila the Hun and of Roman emperors of Caesar and the battles of the Goths and the Huns. Mm. That's absolutely insane. Yeah, that's quite crazy. Without a, a written historiography, this is all storytelling and poetry. Mm. Uh, and that also emphasizes why we, to at least some degree, have to expect that a lot of these, well, at least uh, quite a lot of what's in these uh, poems and sagas uh, has something to do with what has actually either happened or portrays uh, an actual belief system or um, uh, mythology that existed uh, mm. in the times before written uh, traditions were normal in Scandinavia and in Norwegian society we started writing Latin in about the 11th century yeah, which is of course late compared to Old English, which has uh, written uh, sources a lot earlier. It also raises the question of us and them, the 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 idea of the nation, because yeah. Beowulf is an English poem about Danish Swedish kings. Yeah, uh, and the Volsung saga as well, uh, Danish. German stuff and uh, uh, the the Rolf Krake saga yeah, as yeah. well as that's Danish Swedish and then you have these um, uh, the one with the battle between the Goths and uh, the Huns. What's it called again? Uh, is it Helvala saga? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Helvala saga, uh, which is preserved in Old Norse, yeah, but it doesn't take place. The closest it gets to uh, Scandinavia is the burial mounds in uh, on Samsø. Apparently everybody has to get buried in 
kattegatt. Ja, ja. There's this um, non-Scandinavians might not be familiar with this, but there's this uh, in in kattegatt, you know, between uh, between Sweden and and Denmark. There's this tiny island, you know, which uh, which is a hot spot in Norse mythology and legend <laughs> where everybody seems to be doing battles there's berserkers hanging out there there are real mounds uh, the, the god Egir I believe you know has his house there in one source you know it's just yeah. like uh, there's so many motifs about this island and you know we have no idea what is going What's, on what, what is, is going on and, yeah. and the, the super interesting thing yeah. is that it's like a cosmic center you yeah. Know? Yeah. Danes still have uh, a relationship to Samsø um, because the best potatoes they think oh yeah comes from this island maybe, so it's maybe. buried it's yeah, stuff maybe. that is buried at Samsø obviously still holds some really mm, it has some supernatural <laughs> some preternatural yeah. power yeah. <laughs> uh, and it goes straight back to Hava Saga when they need to loot the sword of Tilfing <laughs> oh yeah oh you know the, the, I think I believe it's that saga it has uh, a piece of like a poetic stance that is one of the coolest ones and also one of the most revealing I think in terms of Norse mythology is like I think that Havor is standing, you know, in her is it her father's burial mound or mm. something like that? And she says that it it seems to me that I am standing between worlds. Like and, and she's standing, you know, in this burial mound. Yeah. I think. And and it's she's about to receive this supernatural sword, you know. And she threatens Cursed. she threatens her father with raising him from the dead, isn't that? Yeah, right? I think yeah. Some really weird stuff going yeah. on there, but it shows. Yeah, I think speaking about other, you know, podcasts. I think that's also like how they treated the dead and the perception perceptions about burial practices yeah. and the other world. Wow, that's a, that's a can of worms, man. I'm sure there's free podcasts just in that, you know, and a lot of overlooked stuff too, you know, just as we just as we said right now. But yeah, wow, man, there's. What you just to go back to what you said about the uh, about like the us and them perspective because that's uh, pretty cool you know because there there is some another word that I don't think we got it from Latin at all but there's a word that was used originally uh, against the Romans probably you know wal has uh, yeah, the, yeah the foreigners yeah the foreigners it means foreigner yeah. uh, like as far as we can understand you know mm. but. Uh, it was used originally about the the Romans. It's used against the Franks, you know, or later French, mm. uh, and it's it's the same word as you know the Welsh today. Yeah. It's Wales. It's Wales the, and uh, Welsh and what ha- uh, the the, the Bretonian. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also like uh, speaking of like exotization, you know, how that you you went talking about how these this heroic uh, poetry is mm. so. Uh, continental Germanic in a sense, mm. even though it's uh, it's, it's a common like, uh, common epic about the Germanic people, uh, yeah. and they don't necessarily distinguish between Danes and uh, Alemannis and uh, Swedes and Norwegians isn't even a term until later later on. Yeah, it's tribesmen all over Norway. Yeah. Uh, 
and it goes to show, yeah, if, if you if you're going to have like yeah, a Germanic, like the like the like the the socio like the kind of ethnic mobility within Germanic, mm. uh, like the cultural group must have been immense, you know, mm. the willingness to adapt to other Germanic cultures, yeah. you know, because they seem to be moving all over the place. But I don't, I I, I don't think that they move like. A hundred thousand people from Rügen to Rogaland or something like that. No, that's Maybe something I'm... I pondered about uh, a lot. Is why exactly is it that Rogaland and Rifulke gets their naming after this tribe that apparently comes from Pomerania, Prussia, what have you? Uh, yeah. Uh, it must be some sort of elite that yeah. settles and sort of establishes a hegemony. And you have the same in Hordalam, the Harudis. Yeah. Uh, or, or there are also a continental tribe in uh, Takitos. Germanic tribes, they influenced the Romans as well. I guess they eradicated the Western Roman Empire and yes. stuff like that. But they also, secured, they also secured continuity, you know? Because uh, without that, we wouldn't have the Holy Roman Empire mm-hmm. and the Frankish Empire and uh, the Roman law codes or like medieval law codes inspired by the Roman Roman law. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think that is interesting. Like, there's so much uh, legacy here uh, that is caused. Uh, not just you know, by you know the Romans you know dropping in and you kind of innovating about this, but also like the, the cultural interplay with, with between uh, these Germanic peoples and the and the Romans. You know, some of these people seem like I guess if you're born in uh, a clay hut in Schleswig-Holstein <laughs> and you go with this, you know. Uh, with this Conan the Barbarian esque warlord who says, uh, "Join me, let's go to Rome. Uh, we're gonna, there's gonna be lots of wine, lots of gold. I'll give you a horse, good weapons. Come on, fight with me. Who would not go?" Yeah, At I the would. same time, Rome is this big political menace. You know, it's like this massive. It, it has to feel like being in Afghanistan, and you're like, you got the the American army you're facing that sort of you know uh, competition you know mm-hmm. it must have felt very much like that at times mm-hmm. don't you think uh, yes you 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 do have a threat of these yeah. but it's an impressive threat right it is it's like it's like in 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 Kabul and it's just like an interesting fascinating uh, thought that you have this culture that they're struggling against all the time. You know, the Western forces are fighting guerrillas and warlords in Afghanistan and it's a losing battle, right? You know, they, they have not gotten far in that war. But what happened the moment uh, Kabul was, uh, you know, so-called liberated, you know, it was, you know, DVD shops and that, like, these Western style conveniences were popping up all over the place and you see that with the germanic tribes too they're adopting the luxuries they're adopting the structures of the roman empire but they want to be their own yeah. right you know they want to tear down the aqueducts but they also want the infrastructure yeah yeah um, and of course you you want the best of uh, both sides yeah uh, you don't want to give up your culture but no. you want to you want the good stuff the yeah. other guys have of course you do uh, yeah. it makes sense well, thank you so much for uh, for coming and thank you for having me and being such a an amazing uh, conversation partner. It's always uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a good session, I think. Yeah. 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 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Norse podcast. If you enjoy my podcast or any of the articles on BruteNorse.com, please consider supporting me on Patreon so I may continue and improve the work I am doing. You'll also receive exclusive previews, updates, and outtakes from the podcast. Check it out at patreon.com forward slash brutenorse and sign up for a monthly pledge of as little or as much as you'd like. Of course, you can cancel it anytime you want. This is Eirik reporting from the Brutenorse lair in the weather-beaten hinterlands of West Norway. Thank you very much.